The letter is brief, only one page. It is one of the most neglected books of the New Testament, but the American church, with its tailor your message to fit the consumer mentality, dare not ignore the feisty words of Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. As you find the passage right in front of the last book in the New Testament, let's join our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtzen. Just imagine if you went to a church service and the preacher began talking about his enemies in terminology like this. My enemies are blemishes, rainless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves, and wandering stars. And then he goes on to rebuke his enemies by saying that he's threatening them with eternal damnation. Now, if I was in a church service like that, just to be honest with you, I would be tempted to think that I had gone into kind of an Elmer Gantry situation with someone that just had a chip on his shoulder. Because in our society, we think, you know, that you need to be very calm, you need to be very sedate. And after all, we all know, quote, quote, in the area of religion, that there's a lot of good ways that you can approach God. There's a lot of effective means in order to draw near to God. And let's not think that anybody might be a false teacher. Now, I believe that one of the greatest problems in the American church today, and I think it could be a problem in our church, is the problem of balance. Either we can be so vitriolic, so much involved in giving out and hurling out accusations, the sad part of that is many times the accusations are thrown out over things that really aren't that important, I'm sure you've all heard about churches where you go, especially back in the 60s where they might have a haircutting time at the end of a service and everyone would get right with the Lord and make sure that their hair was cut up above their ears. Now we might have to let our hair grow a little bit below our ears because the style is to have it cut above your ears. You've all heard about some crazy things that have been done like that. Now in reaction to that, in reaction to that, it's easy for us to have the idea that there shouldn't be any any accusations there shouldn't be any strong negative teaching against anything in fact a lot of the church today has the idea that everything needs to be very positive very up i mean after all what do we come to church for church is a lot like a big sales convention it's supposed to get you up supposed to get you high it's supposed to get you excited supposed to thrill you in fact we even evaluate it that way when we leave did i get warm today Did I have that nice, ooey, oily feeling come over me and make me feel really good? Well, the tragedy of that kind of teaching is that it's going to have to ignore a good portion of God's Word. I want you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Jude. In the book of Jude, you're not going to listen to me preach, and you can take what I say a lot of times with a grain of salt, but what I teach that's from the Word of God, I want the Holy Spirit to use very powerfully in your life through the week. What I'd like you to do for the next few weeks is just begin to read the book of Jude. In fact, it's a book that you can probably read through in about 20 minutes. But I want to encourage you to start reading it over and over again and start asking yourself, Heavenly Father, what does this book have to say for me? It begins with Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, and we're there introduced to the author. The author of the book of Jude, it's the second to the last book of the New Testament, Some scholars have called it the most neglected book in the New Testament, primarily because it's so short. Number two, because it's full of accusations against false teachers. 
And that just worked out to cause a lot of churches and believers to kind of just forget about it. In fact, if I were to ask you before I started preaching today, I'd like someone to stand up and give me a summary of the book of Jude. How would you do? Now, Ephesians, we might do pretty well. Romans, we might do pretty well. But I have to be honest, even in my seminary career, Jude was that book that was tucked in right near the end. And I don't even remember who taught it to us. It's not one of those books that tends to be dominant in the teaching ministry of a church. And yet as a Bible church, we're very committed to knowing every single word from Genesis to Revelation. And so Jude begins his book, Jude is servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. How many of you kids would refer to your older brother and you would call yourself his servant? How many of you at times have a little bit of a hard time getting along with your brother or with your older sister? Anybody ever have that trouble? Now, can you imagine growing up and calling yourself your older brother's servant? Turn on your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. And I'll begin reading to you in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there and coming to his hometown, he came back home and he began teaching the people in their synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this, in other words, the idea here, where did this man, where did this hometown boy, this fellow that was raised in our high school, in our elementary school, where did this hometown man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this, you know, Joseph's son? His mother's name is Mary, and aren't his brothers James? Now listen to this. Aren't his brothers James... Now that is the one who became the leader of the Jerusalem church that when we study the book of Acts was the leader, the spokesman of the Jerusalem church. James was the next brother below Jesus. Then Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Now the word Judas is just another form of the name Jude, which is a Greek form of the name of the Hebrew Judah. In fact, all of these are really good Jewish names. And Judah evidently was the fourth brother. If you look at the book of Mark, maybe he was the third brother. But what I want you to realize is that we're reading the pages of a man that grew up with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was his half-brother. John 7 tells us that when Jude was living with his brother, he didn't believe in Jesus. All during the earthly ministry of Jesus, Jude failed to believe that his older brother was truly the Christ the promised one from God. In fact, he maintained that belief until sometime after the resurrection. Jesus, as his half-brother, who after he rose from the dead became the ascended, exalted Lord, appeared to his brothers, to James and also to Jude. And that forever changed their life. And Jude realized that that older brother, who was always perfect, never got in Joseph and Mary's hair, could never be accused of doing anything wrong. Can you imagine growing up with a brother like that? That would be enough to get anybody's dander up a little bit. It would be hard to believe that this older brother that you were raised with was none other than the very gift of God. But what I want you to understand, if you think of the fact that Jude refers to himself now as the servant of Jesus, which means the Savior, of Christ, which means the Messiah, we're talking about a younger half-brother who now realizes, and the power of that realization is underscored by the family relationship 
that Jude had with his older half-brother, now he realizes that that brother that he grew up with is the Savior and the promised one from God. This is a very common expression that Paul will use in his own books. He likes to refer to himself as the servant of Jesus Christ. You know, I've been thinking about that this week. I would pray that every one of us, from the smallest child to the oldest adult, would really meditate on who Jesus is and the fact that he is the Messiah and why that you and I need to look upon our lives as being a service to Jesus Christ. One of the things I'd like all of us to do is to begin to pray that the Holy Spirit would enable us to be servants of Christ. Like when we get up today, what do we view this day to be used for? Why are we going to live today? I think Jude is telling us here that when he got up and as he lived his life, he would say, I want to be a slave. I want to be a servant to Jesus Christ. You know, there's unbelievable freedom in that. You see, if we're working for GM, if we're working for the steel plant, if we're working for an oil company, whatever it might be, we're going to be let down in our lives if the meaning of our life is any of those occupations. I'm a slave to my vocation. Then that vocation will destroy us. Jesus is the only master that we can choose to become a servant to, who knows everything there is to know about us, who loves us, who cares for us, who ultimately is even going to take us through that final crisis of death. That's why Jude would refer to himself as the servant of Christ, because Jesus is the only exalted Lord that really deserves our service and our dedication. I believe that that becomes the groundwork by which we build our families, by which we build our church family. That every one of us need to be asking ourselves deep in our heart, am I the servant of Jesus the Savior, the promised Messiah? Jude goes on and calls himself the brother of James, which reminds us that of the family relationship that I was talking about. It also tells us that he was intimately related to some of the most dominant leaders in the first century church. And so we're faced with the authorship of this book with Jude, the half-brother of Christ, the full brother of James, and evidently, like James, Jude had become a very prominent leader in the first century church. The second part of verse 1 introduces us to the recipients of the book. Who did, James write, who did Jude write to? Now, a lot of books, like the book of Galatians, we can tell pretty much where Paul was writing. In the book of uh, Philippians, we know for sure that Paul was writing to the church of Philippi. And also in a lot of the Pauline books, we can figure out exactly when it was written, who it was written to, and where it was written. In the book of Jude, we can't do any of those things. In fact, that's why these final epistles in the New Testament are called the general epistles. Sometimes they're referred to as the Catholic epistles. That's not Roman Catholic, but Catholic just meaning the universal the commonly held epistles. And so what it's calling our attention to is the fact that unlike some of the Pauline letters who are written to very specific groups of people, the book of Jude, we don't know who the specific group of people was, who they were that he was writing to. We can make some guesses. They were probably Jewish. You say, how can you guess that? Well, when you're reading through the book this week, notice all the references back to the Old Testament and also notice the references to some extra-biblical Jewish literature. It's going to refer to a book called Enoch. And some of the quotes are from a book of Enoch. There's also good evidence that probably he was quoting from a Jewish 
book that was called the Assumption of Moses. In other words, when Moses was taken up into heaven. And so Jude quotes from some of these extra Jewish literature. And so we could gather that Gentiles wouldn't understand that. In fact, that's one of the reasons that we're teaching you on Sunday morning, because most of you wouldn't understand those quotes either. And so we can kind of fill in some of that historical information, and that'll spring you loose to be able to really hear what the Holy Spirit has for you to hear in the book of Jude. So we can make some surmises about the book, that it was probably written to a strongly Jewish element in the first century church. We can also guess that it was probably later in the first century. It could have been as late as 80 or 85, which would have put it very near the writing of the book of Revelation, which was written in the early 90s. So we're coming near the end of the first century church, uh, the, of that apostolic church. Not the end of the church, but the end of that apostolic age. The significance of that is that this book gives us a feel that already in the first century, the church was recognizing that they had been given a very precious treasure. And it's very important for us to realize that we have been the recipients of this treasure as well. And they had a concept, we have received a body of truth. And we're going to study more about that as we develop the idea of this book. But that concept that we're probably dealing with a later development of the first century, the body of the faith, the faith, the doctrine, the teaching, which will deliver us, has begun to be thought of as a body of literature. And Jude is the one that's bringing all that to a head and warning us of some very extreme dangers which he was facing in his own church, which we could easily face in our church. He does tell us concretely, though, some very important things about the, the believers he was writing to. And these are characteristics which, which could be applied to us just as much as they could be applied to the believers that Jude was writing to. Notice at the end of verse 1, he says this, to those who have been called. When I ask you a question, do you feel that you've been called? I've got a mansion over the hilltop. Does that mean anything? Why should we sing about rooms and mansions, whatever they might be, that Jesus is preparing for us? How do you know that that's really true? How do you know that as we gather together, we really can believe that? The reason is that we've been called. You see, the New Testament teaches that God in heaven especially calls people to himself. In the Old Testament, God reached down and called Israel. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord will talk about the fact that, that Israel was just a wandering, nomadic people. He will say that Abraham was just an Aramean, just like any other Near Eastern ancient patriarch. And God will say up in heaven that he called Abraham, not because he was such a good man, not because God foresaw some great thing that he would do. God will again and again say, that was not the reason I called Abraham. And we say, well, why did you call Abraham, God? And God will say, because I wanted to. Because I loved Abraham. Because I wanted to make him my own. What you all need to understand is that that was totally a free gift, a free choice, a gift of grace. You say, Dave, what does that have to do with me? Romans chapter 8 says, those whom he called, he also predestined. He also elected and it goes on and traces it right through from call, predestined, to, to justify, to glorify. It lumps it all together and says that if you're sitting in this audience this morning, as you sit here this morning, 
If you can, re- if you know in your heart, you don't even have to remember the exact moment, but if you know in your heart as you sit there this morning that you are believing for, the, in, for your eternal salvation in what Christ did for you on the cross. In other words, as I'm teaching you this morning and I'm talking about, about the gospel and what Christ has done, if you sit there this morning as a person who says, that's what I believe, that's what I'm committed to, then you're one of the called ones. You're one of those that God reached down and touched. Just think back for a moment about how you came to the Lord. Think of the process. Some of you were raised in Christian homes. When the time you were very small, your mom and dad were teaching you about the gospel of Christ. And so the Lord opened your heart when you were very small. What a marvelous story that is. Looking around the room, many of the kids that have been raised in our own church were called by the Lord when they were very young to respond to the gospel of Christ. But I look around the room and I pick up some other ones. Some of you lived for many years, way out there. I mean, you lived so far out in the dark, we couldn't even see you out there hardly. And if I would have told you even just a few years ago, you're going to be gathering together faithfully with God's family. You're going to be coming together week after week. During the week, you're going to be reading the Bible. You're going to be praying. You're going to be excited about telling other people about the gospel of Christ. If I would have told some of you that even five or ten years ago, you would have cursed me. You would have said, you've got to be nutty. I would never believe that Looney Tunes fairy tale kind of stuff. That's for weak people. And then the Lord began to draw you and pull you to himself. And that mighty hand of God was upon you. I think of some of the rest of you. Some of you were raised in, in churches that really didn't teach the gospel. You were raised in nice, polite, social churches, and they told you every Sunday, you're good children, you're good people, and boy, that's all that God can expect. God grades in the curve, and boy, as I look at the curve, you're on the upper side, everything's going to be great. Some of you are raised in churches like that. And then all of a sudden, the, the Lord began to pull you. He began to call you. He started to draw you to himself. And you began to realize, hey, I'm not such a good person. I've got some real problems in my life. I know there's some things in my thought life that God could never dare to let into heaven. It would pollute the whole thing. And you began to realize as the Holy Spirit began to convict you, I'm not really a good person. I've got some real problems. And the Lord began to open your heart to convince you and to convict you, I'm a sinner. And then the Lord caused you to realize, but Christ paid it all. But on the cross of Calvary, Jesus stretched out his hands and died as a sacrifice for sins. And some of you remember when the Spirit of God caused it to dawn like a light, like the sunshine coming up at 5 o'clock in the morning. You began to realize, hey, it was for me the Savior died. It was for me that he bled and he hung on that cross. And you believed that he rose again and and you opened your heart. That's what it means to be called. In fact, as we gather together here, that idea that we have been called is enough to lead to great mercy and peace and joy in our life. But Jude not only says that we've been called, but he says that we've been loved by God and kept by Jesus Christ. The word that's used for being loved by God the Father is a word that refers to the moment that I've been talking about. It refers back to that time when God commended his love toward us, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God, even to them that believe in his name. That word 
God has loved or God loves begins at that special moment when God incorporated you into his family. And then the word says that God's love that began at that moment in a very special way for you. Because we're not just talking here about God's love for the whole world. God does love the whole world. But Jude is talking especially to you as believers this morning. And he's saying that you have a special family love. But the word also stresses that that love is continuing. It's expanding, it's growing, and it's influencing your life more and more and more. You know, I believe that one of Satan's greatest lies to you all as God's people is this idea that you're really not loved by God. And so Jude starts out this book and says, you as God's people are the loved ones, the loved ones of God. If I were to ask you, who are your loved ones? Who am I talking about? If I say, do you ever get together with your loved ones? Who do you think of immediately? You think of your mom and dad, your brothers and sisters, your relatives. You think of Thanksgiving. You think of Christmas. Getting together with those people that live with you day in and day out. Some of them raised you. And they didn't give up on you. Because even human love begins to give us hints of a love that far transcends any human love that we could ever give. And I wish I could just open all of your hearts and just pour in this idea this morning that Jude is telling us. You are the called ones. What does that mean? It means that God loves you as his kids today. God's really in love with you. He really cherishes you. You're special people. And this is so vital because all of us tend to act like what we believe people think about us. I want you to start to think about what God thinks about me. You see, some of you don't have parents you can look back on. Some of you that are older, even some of the younger ones, they can't look back on parents that really cherished them and loved them all their lives. Some of you can't do that. Some of you didn't have the example of a father that really loved or a mom that really loved. And that's why this idea is so important because it needs to permeate from the smallest child to the oldest adult God the Father wants every one of you that have invited Christ into your heart to realize that as we sit here in this auditorium this morning, Jude, the, one of the brothers of Christ, would look at you all and say, you're called. I want to tell you something. God in heaven, the Father in heaven, thinks you are the loved children. You see, until you really get that into your heart, you'll have a hard time sharing Christ. You see, when you begin to realize God really loves me. I know I'm not perfect yet. I know I haven't become totally like Christ. I know that I slip. I know sometimes I fall very seriously. But God the Father still accepts me as his child. He still loves me tenderly as a daddy. When that acceptance, that security, that love really grips your heart, then you've got something to share. You can put your arm around a young child that doesn't really have that kind of love expressed to them. And you can tell them about a Father in Heaven who will never leave them nor forsake them. But you know, we've not only been loved by God the Father, but look what else it says. How many of you think you're going to make it? Let's be honest. I want you to think with me for a minute. How many of you think you're going to make it all the way into the eternal kingdom? Huh? How many of you think? Some of you are raising your hands. Good. Carol, are these going to make it? You know, Carol, why are you going to make it? How are you going to make it? 
I mean, I've seen you do something. You're not always consistent, Carol. How in the world are you going to make it? Okay, good, good. That's exactly what the text is saying. Who does it say we're kept by? Let me read this verse. It says you've been loved by God the Father and you've been kept by your consistency, by your faithfulness, by your giving, by your obedience. Is that what it says? No. Who does it say we've been kept by? Exactly what Carol said. We've been kept by Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you think that's pretty good? Jude is saying here, and kept by Jesus Christ. You know, I believe that that's one of the most important ideas that we need to get into our hearts. Because it hurts me so much, I think some of you are still struggling, you're tripping along in your Christian life. When you fail, you begin to say, well, I'm out of the family. And you never can start to grow consistently. You can never start to move on in your Christian life because you don't feel kept. The idea I'm getting across to you this morning is that you are kept not because of your faithfulness, not because of your abilities, but because of the Son of God's promise. He says that the moment that you opened your heart to Christ, he put you into his hand. And he's going to keep you in Philippians 1, 6, he writes, being confident of this very thing, that he which began a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. And that's the day when he comes back. And Jesus hasn't lost one of his children yet. And that's what Judah is reminding us of. We are kept by Jesus Christ. Now, what does that produce in our life? What happens when you feel like you've been called, when you feel like God the Father loves you, and you feel like you're being kept by the Son of God? Well, you start to experience mercy. Now, let's suppose that you're on death row. Put yourself in Barabbas' shoes. And there you are in this grimy, dirty hole of a Roman cell. You look forward that afternoon to the excruciating pain of having nails driven right through the center of your hand, another nail right through your foot. And you're sitting there with it, maybe two or three other, other prisoners, and they're cursing and griping about the Roman system and you know, all upset that they got caught. And you're sitting there with your hands down between your legs just about and wondering what is, what is it going to be like to die and why do I have to die of that kind of a death? Why don't they just cut my head off or something like that? And suddenly you hear the heavy boots or a heavy sandals of a Roman soldier coming down the quarters of the prison and he opens the door and says, Barabbas, walk out. Pilate showed you mercy. You can go free. Now, how do you think you'd feel? Man, you'd walk out of that dark dungeon and you'd walk out into the sunlight of that courtyard and that sun would never, never look like that again in your life. And you talk about singing, you talk about praise, you talk about joy. A lot of you say, well, where does the joy come from in the Christian life? That's where it comes from. Because Jesus took our place just like Jesus took the place of Barabbas. All of us are like Barabbas. Every single one of us are on death row. That's what Jude wants us to realize. We have obtained mercy. The word mercy is a word that connotes the idea of, of a criminal that's been set free, of someone who should have been punished, who should have been executed, who should have faced death because of the crime that they've committed, but by a pure act of, of the governor, of the king, of the ruler. He pardons them. And that's where our joy flows from. By the way, it says here that we've not only attained mercy, but peace 
and love be yours in abundance. You see, I'll, you know, a lot of you ask me, what does the Bible mean by peace? I've been thinking about that this week in regard to what Jude is saying here. I think peace is an attitude of heart that comes from accepting and believing and putting our confidence in the fact that we've obtained mercy. See, it's not saying that you'll never cry in your life. It's not saying that you won't go through some very, very hard times if you're a believer. It's not just tranquility. It's that deep, settled attitude in your heart that God the Father in heaven isn't angry with me anymore. That God the Father in heaven isn't my judge anymore. We are at peace. Now, how did we achieve that peace? Because the Father showed us mercy through his Son and anointed us with the Holy Spirit. You see, peace comes by resting in God's mercy and putting our confidence in God's mercy. And then we come back to the idea that he started with love. He says, this love, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So the idea here is, may it be multiplied to you. May it just grow in your heart. You know, I would pray that in our spiritual lives that we wouldn't just have that first flush, that first flush of joy and romantic love with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it begins to wane. And some of you say, well, Dave, why does it begin to wane? Because in any relationship, you go through a period of euphoria, like in a marriage, close friendships, and then you come to a crisis when all the euphoria is worn off, when all the newness is worn off. Then you decide whether or not you're going to keep growing in relationships. And how does that relationship grow? As I'm teaching you this morning, as I'm teaching this morning, what have I done? As some of you say, I'm encouraged in my Christian life. One of the neatest things you can ever say to me is you say as we've been together, I just want you to know that the Holy Spirit encouraged me in my life. It helped me to fall more in love with God. It caused me to come back from some sinful behavior that I was going to have. Now, if I were to ask you to give testimony, that we just finished out our time, and I ask you to stand up, why don't you just share testimonies of some things that the Lord has taught you on a Sunday morning, through Dave's teaching or through my own teaching, that really built you up. A lot of you could share. But you know what Jude is telling us? We need to have mercy, peace, and love multiplied in our hearts day by day. And what I want you to realize is that what we've done here this morning you can do every single day in the quietness of your own heart. If some of you are saying, well, my heart has grown cold. My heart is moving away from the Lord. Or do you have a time every day when you just prayerfully read God's Word? In other words, will you have a time today when on your own, when on your own you'll take out the Scripture and maybe look at the book of Jude and just start asking yourself, what does he mean when he talks about beloved of God the Father? What does he mean when he talks about receiving mercy, peace, and love and having it multiplied in my life? And just thinking about that and allowing the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to begin to, to cleanse your mind and to renew your mind. You see, that's the key to having these marvelous qualities of mercy, peace, and love growing, multiplying, replenishing themselves. That's why it's so hard to do it. That's why it, it's so hard. There's, there's not enough time. We don't feel like it. I'm not sure I want to. I don't want to be a hypocrite. 
You can go on and on and on. Satan will give us every reason in the world not to feed upon God's Word. But I want to share with you, I've never, never yet met a mature believer, a believer that was consistent, a believer that had real peace manifested in a progressive way in their life, that didn't read God's Word in a loving, personal way on their own, personally, independently, every day. You know, brothers and sisters, there's no way that I'm going to be able to teach you the whole Bible. I'm too slow. So I, I'm going to try. I mean, we'll, we'll keep going through the books of the Bible. I'll give you overviews, and I'll summarize books for you. But all the richness, like thinking about all the individual words, allowing the Spirit to teach you all the things that the Spirit wants to teach you, but you can do it. You've got time. One-on-one -on -one with the Lord every day. As we're taking the book of Jude, I'd encourage you just to start reading through the book of Jude, writing observations down, asking, asking yourself what it means. You do that for a month's time, and you'll know more about the book of Jude than 98% of the Christians in the whole world, because most Christians never do that. Most Christians just come Sunday after Sunday and let somebody stick a spoon in their mouth. But there's a few... And I pray in our own church, there will be much more than a few. There's a few that say, hey, I'm tired of just letting someone else stick a silver spoon in my mouth. I'm going to get it on my own. And you're going to begin to wrestle. You're going to begin to listen. You're going to begin to study God's word on your own. And those ideas are going to start feeding your heart. Because you are the called ones. You are the loved ones. You are the ones that God is bestowing his mercy, his peace and love upon